Okay, good morning, everyone. Sorry, we're a few minutes late on the start. That's the way it's gone today. Let's begin with an invocation and prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. All right, we left off um, maybe somewhere around 315. Does that ring a bell? Okay. And so what we want to do is, and this is always the awkward thing with doing Bible studies, is the argument, you know, a, a text like Galatians is meant to be read as one piece. And so we're constantly in danger of losing the argument or the sub-argument. And I will just simply and expediently point out this argument starts in chapter 3, verse 1. O foolish Galatians. That marks a transition. And his argument really carries on all the way through 4.11. So we're kind of in the midst of his argument as he turns from you know, the, the state of the controversy within the larger church in regard to the question of circumcision and its necessity which obviously he sees it as not necessary, nor any of the other keepings of the law, be they ceremonial or moral, if one is relying upon them for salvation, or if one is looking at them as the basis of justification. Paul sees this as contrary to the Christian faith. Salvation is by Christ alone, through faith alone, etc. So in chapter 3, verse 1, he turns to the Galatians, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you. And he starts, interestingly, with the argument of their receipt of the Holy Spirit. And this is, of course, in fulfillment of a number of uh, Old Testament texts. You can think of (coughs) Peter's sermon in Pentecost when the Holy Spirit's poured out, and he quotes from Amos about the, the Spirit of God being poured out upon all flesh, including the Gentiles. And so the Spirit of God poured out upon all flesh is a marker of the results of what the Messiah has done and the start of a new era, we might say, but really a new age altogether. So he says, look, did you receive the Holy Spirit by doing the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Well, by the hearing of faith. So it was faith first, and then later on, the law teachers have come in and taught you, now you have to do the ceremonial aspects of the law, circumcision, etc., in order to be saved. He's going to draw this parallel to their specific circumstances with Abraham, and we touched on this last week, with Abraham, who was given the promises by God and brought to faith prior to circumcision. And there's a twofold point that Paul always makes there, here in, and in Romans. And that twofold point is in the first place that God reckons Abraham righteous by his faith, not by his faith plus his circumcision. So God doesn't say, oh, Abraham, you believed in me and were circumcised, therefore you're righteous. No. 
Abraham believed on God and God credited or accounted it or reckoned it, logicked it, as righteousness. So that is righteousness apart from circumcision, righteousness apart from the law, righteousness apart from any human work, righteousness by faith alone. That's Paul's argument. Make sense so far? Okay. So then that really kind of summarizes as as best I can short order what the argument is in verses 7 through 9. And then let's get a run up by going into 10 and then just flowing into the new material. So verse 10, for all who, here's the key word, rely on the works of the law. We're, We're going to see in very short order at the end of Galatians that Paul is not against the moral content of the law. He would certainly be against reliance upon the moral content of the law, just as he is against reliance on the ceremonial content of the law. Um, When we think of the moral content of the law, we're thinking of the Ten Commandments and those things that pertain to our consciences and natural law. When we think of the ceremonial aspects of the law, we're thinking of circumcision, certain dietary restrictions, observance of days and a religious calendar. And again, the key word is we're not relying upon these things. Are these things permissible? Well, sure, there's nothing wrong with following a church calendar, for example, or following an Old Testament calendar. There's nothing wrong with circumcision as such. Uh, Whether one is circumcised or uncircumcised doesn't matter in the least, Paul is going to argue. Okay, so uh, same, same also with dietary laws. I mean, you know, if you follow the Atkins diet, uh, or if you follow the Jewish diet, as long as you're not relying upon it, there's no problem. So this language of for all who rely on the works of the law is very much what's in view. These things are left free to us as long as we do not rely upon them. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things. And there's where the emphasis is to be put in Paul's argument. Who does not abide by all things. See, if you're going to rely on the law, you can't pick and choose. You can't say, okay, I'm going to be justified by the law. That means all I have to do is circumcision and I'm good. It's not how it works. That's not how the law itself works. You have to abide in all things. So cursed is, according to the law itself, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. And, of course, we're citing that from Deuteronomy 27. Paul continues, verse 11, Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. And again, we're talking about reliance in the sense of justification or being seen as righteous in God's sight. That's what it means to be justified. No one is justified before God by the law. For, now he quotes, Uh, Habakkuk, the righteous shall live by faith. 
Now, there's a long and protracted argument to be made here. I'm just simply not going to make it. It doesn't appeal to me. That He's probably quoting these verses because the opponents have quoted these verses. And the opponents are using them in almost the exact opposite way that Paul's using them. That's what, it, what is thought to be where these come from. Paul's just not picking them out of the blue. All right. So, the righteous shall live by faith... And that's obviously set in contrast to cursed are those who do not abide by all the things written in the law. Okay, The righteous shall live by faith. There's the first juxtaposition and uh, contradiction between the two in the narrow sense. Okay, Then verse 12, but the law is not of faith. Now, this is exactly the argument that the opponents are likely making. They're saying faith and the law together is what makes justification. So faith plus, and it really doesn't matter if it's faith plus the ceremonial works or faith plus the moral works. The whole point is that it's faith plus something that a human being is doing equals justification. And Paul's saying, no, it's by faith alone. All right? So, the law is not of faith. That's the knife that Paul is using to cut between the law and faith. Um, They're two contraries in terms of the question of justification. So, the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them, them being the things of the law, shall live by them. And this is cited from Leviticus 18. Obviously, what's the point? The point is that we don't do all of them, so we don't live by them. So the law ends up cursing us, sentencing us to death. Thus, verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. So the answer of our ability to our inability to fulfill the law is not try harder, nor is our inability to fulfill the law remedied by now you have faith and the Holy Spirit, so you're able to justify yourself by the law. That is excluded here. The remedy is rather to be found in Christ alone. Christ who redeems us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse himself. Paul's proof text is as such, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. And that's cited from Deuteronomy 21.23. So you can see that then Christ subjects himself to the curse of the law in order that that curse might be uh, undone for us. We might be redeemed from its curse. Verse 14, so that, Paul writes, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. All right, a couple of things to point out. The first is, you've got this really nice structure in verse 10, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things. Let's call that A. And then B, the righteous shall live by faith. 
And then what's the contrast to that B? That is the law, the one who does them shall live by them. So you have an A, B, B, and then you go back to the curse. Christ redeemed us from the curse, A. So you have this nice A, B, B, A format there that you can see. Curse, the distinction between faith and law, and how the curse is remedied in Christ. You see that structure? You see how that makes sense? Kind of a nice way of doing it. That would be the first point I'd bring to your attention. And then the second point is when we're talking about the blessing of Abraham, we need to go back to the end of verse 5 of this chapter and recall his argument. So, if you take verse 5, does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? The answer is going to be by the hearing of faith. Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. So again, faith equals righteousness, not keeping the law. All right. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Okay. Again, it would the argument that Paul's opponents would be making is that, no, it's the circumcised law followers who are sons of Abraham. And Paul's rejecting that. Before Abraham even was circumcised or did any acts of the law, um, he was justified by faith. So to you. So those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. Not the doers of law of the law are sons of Abraham, but the, those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. Um, an argument, by the way, he's going to spell out uh, in chapter 4, the later part, with Hagar and Sarah. We'll have to hold our breath until then. Verse 8, And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So here's the gospel, St. Paul says. Now, St. Paul, New Testament, understands what the gospel is and says that gospel was preached to Abraham. We know, too, that that gospel was preached to Adam and Eve. Remember the seed of the woman, the offspring of the woman. That was the language. So your faith would be in the offspring or the seed. That's the faith that Adam and Eve had. And that's the faith that Abraham had. And that seed we know is Jesus Christ. And so they're Christian, we're Christian. That's the point. And it's faith in the gospel. It's not Abraham had some generic faith in God. It's that he had faith in this specific promise of God that God would bring the seed, the Messiah, the Savior. So Abraham's faith is in Jesus, even though he doesn't know him by that name. So the gospel, uh, yeah. So the scriptures preach the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, "In you, and here's the key for our purposes, all the nations shall be blessed." So all the nations, not just the Jews, but the Gentiles as well. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Now that narrows it from all nations being blessed to those who are of faith among the nations, specifically being blessed along with Abraham, who is the man of faith. All right, now back to 14. And of course, we're 
mid-sentence after the famous Pauline dash. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham, justification by faith, might come to the Gentiles, to all nations, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. And that takes us back to the argument presented in 1 through 6. So you can see what Paul's doing. is really rhetorically tight, organized, beautiful, and builds upon itself in this sort of woven way, making his case stronger and stronger. So far, so good. There's one hand uh, that just popped up. Hello. Okay. Sorry. Uh, so in terms of apologetics, uh, if from a Hebrew standpoint, how would you, uh, how would they argue that that doesn't mean um, that through you all nations shall be blessed, that that doesn't, that doesn't point to Christ? How would, how would like a contemporary Jew, um, traditional, I don't know, conservative Jewish well, how would they say, no, that doesn't mean that. It means it, all nations shall be blessed in some other way. Can you? Oh, I see. So like if you took a 21st century Jew, yeah. um, how would they understand that original Genesis text? Yeah. That through Abraham, all the nations shall be blessed. Yeah. Okay, so it's dangerous because there's all kinds of different Jews that believe all kinds of different things. But um, I think just to try to give the most bland general answer you'd likely to be received, it would be that the answer is in the Jewish people. So that the offspring of Abraham are the biological offspring of Abraham and the offspring in plural. So that's the, they would say that that's what it means originally in Genesis and Paul is misreading it and having it refer to Christ rather than the people and to offspring by faith rather than offspring by genetic material. By the Jewish people, of course. <laughs> no, that's, that's their, I mean, that would be the answer in keeping with that, is that the, uh, the uh, Jewish people are God's elect and chosen, and their very presence um, in the world uh, and maybe even especially spread throughout the world is a blessing to the nations, uh, their righteousness, their goodness, etc. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, yeah. Um, you can see why uh, Jews say of the first century, um, and we've seen some of this already in Galatians, uh, in Paul's argument in chapter 2, um, why it is that Jews of the first century literally like had a hard time accepting that Gentiles would be saved with them because the law bifurcates and separates them, the Jew from the Gentile. I mean, to such an extent that you're like, we're a lawkeeper, we're we're enlightened and we're moral. We are human. Everyone else is unenlightened, immoral, and like dogs. And that's the that's the sense that you get. And so the idea that the Gentile dogs are going to be brought to Abraham's table to eat is a scandalous idea. And, it, and it's an idea that 
um, wreaks havoc, or you know, this tension wreaks havoc in a number of the congregations. Uh, Ephesians uh, and Colossians both address this. Um, this reality that, no, this is the mystery hidden before the ages, that God would justify all human beings by faith, Jew and Gentile, and indeed make them one. And, that, and Paul, of course, is going to do that uh, in, a, in a chapter to come here in Galatians as well. Yeah, great question. Okay, another hand in the back. But... Uh, When when you say that, they knew from their own scriptures, though, because they have the court of the Gentiles. And so they know God said the Gentiles are supposed to be worshiping here. And then it says, you know, in Exodus they were told that you're supposed to bring the the Gentiles with them because Mm -hmm. they would participate. So my comment then would be, how come they can't read their own writing? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, um, what you have, and and this is a this is something you've got to make distinct now. Like, okay, so I think just a really a really general, easy way of communicating this, and maybe it's not in the cleanest or purest terms. That's fine. I would just, I'm just going to concede that. But if you think about the Old Testament like this, there is the Hebrew faith. Okay, and, and for the way we're going to think about that is there's the orthodox faith of the Old Testament. Right? And then there's all matter of aberration. Everything from the kind of polytheism and syncretism to just outright rejection of Yahweh. And then what starts to develop, though, increasingly is that the sacraments, or the sacraments, the sacrifices take on an ex opera operato character, like God doesn't really care that, that I am seeing him as my only God. He just wants the sacrifice, and it's done, and it's exchanged. And then with this kind of becomes a disconnected moralism. So this is then where, like, you think of the groups like the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They're kind of born out of this. And this is what I would really call, like, Judaism. And so the Hebrew faith versus Judaism. The Hebrew faith is centered on Christ from Adam to Abraham to David, the minor prophets. They're and the Hebrew faith is talking about when this seed, this offspring comes, the Holy Spirit will be poured out on all flesh and Gentiles will be brought in. There will be a resurrection of all flesh. When the seed comes, he will suffer and be, and be raised. You find all of this in the Old Testament scriptures. And so the Hebrew faith, orthodox faith of the Old Testament is exactly what you're describing. By the time the Pharisees and Sadducees get around, that's all been perverted and has really become a totally different religion. I mean, the Sadducees don't believe in a resurrection of the body. Um, They believe that you're moral in this life and in this life only, and you're rewarded in this life and in this life only. And that's the structure of it. And that they're just privileged to be children of Abraham. Likewise, the Pharisees, of which Paul was one, believe that they're privileged to be the chosen people. Their genetic 
attachment to Abraham is equivalent to how we would think of baptism. It's foundational. It's the guarantee that they're in. That's why both John and Christ say, do not say that you are sons of Abraham. That's their defense. It's like, hey, you can't tell me anything. I've got the right genes. So uh, this Judaism then malforms into, uh, hey, look, only if you're, you know, we don't, like from a pharisaical position, yeah, okay, if you're one of the sort of God-seekers or God-inquiring Gentiles, I'm sure he'll have mercy on you and maybe some second-class place for you to go after this life, but we're the real deal. And then just like this kind of extreme hierarchy of righteousness, and um, that's going to directly correlate how faithful you are in keeping the law and the traditions of the fathers and all this other additional stuff that's going to determine not only your status before God, like whether you get in or not, but then your position there. Are you high up the hierarchy or not? So, I mean, all of that's Judaism, and then you're going to find some overlap. And obviously it's more complicated than I'm portraying it, but that would, at least in broad terms, give you a sense for the Hebrew faith and the Pharisaic or Judaistic faith. So um, Christ himself is against this, of course. This is why he, you know, says, he, he calls the Pharisees whitewashed sepulchers. Uh, so whitewashed tombs inside full of death and sin, outside presenting themselves as if they're righteous. And it's why he says in the Sermon on the Mount to his, to his disciples and followers that your righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. And he doesn't just mean like, because I'm going to die for you and you believe in me. I mean, if he meant that, he would have said that. But he goes on to explore exa- to, to explore and explain exactly how that is going to be the case. That through the, out- that through the renewal that he has come to bring, we know for, from other texts through that outpouring of the Holy Spirit, through what Jesus himself says, that there is a renewed heart and a transformation that already begins to take place in Christians that isn't present in unbelievers or in the Pharisees, for example. So um, they think they're righteous because they haven't murdered someone or because they haven't uh, physically committed adultery. Jesus says no in both cases. Righteousness is a matter of the heart. And he goes through six such instances. The point of Jesus' sermon is never like, hey, so you have no hope except for me. Again, there's no line in his sermon that says anything remotely close to that. So either Jesus is an incompetent preacher or we're wrong. And, you know, I think, I think I'd know exactly which one I'd like to admit. So we need to relook at that and then see that what Jesus has come to do is reverse everything. Um, and that's evident even in the Beatitudes where he starts blessing those whom the world considers to be cursed and then starts calling his, his followers uh, and indeed gifting his followers um, because they are in him with a righteousness that even someone like the Pharisees can't have a righteousness of the heart, a renewal of the heart through the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. Okay? That's why at the end of this sermon, Jesus doesn't say, the climax of Jesus' sermon isn't, so look for me on the cross. Uh, that's your only righteousness. The climax of, of his sermon is, 
if you're a hearer only, you're a fool who has built his house upon the sand. If you're a hearer and a doer, you are a wise man who has built his house upon the rock. I mean, what do you take away from that? Do you want to be a hearer only or a doer also? A doer also. That's how you're wise and that's how you're righteous. Not that you earn it, but that there is rather an ontological difference between the believer and the unbeliever. That is to say, one is a new creation and one is the old creation. One is a sinner masquerading as if he was righteous when even his righteous deeds are as filthy rags. The other one is a baptized son of God and a new creation. That's what Jesus is doing all through his Sermon on the Mount. And that's what Paul's going to be doing here, too. So that's going to be the tie-in. And I know I've gotten a little far afield on your particular question, but um, that's because, as I think I've directed us almost every single time, we need to go back to chapter 1, verse 3 and 4, to see what Paul's going to be doing um, as his thesis really comes into its fullness. Uh, here in chapter 3 and 4. And that is, if you go back to chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. And that present evil age for for the pagans is paganism. It's crass idolatry and worship of false gods. And the evil age, as it were, for the, for the Hebrew people is the bondage of the law. That's what Paul's going to see it as. And we, we have been set free from both of those things and brought into a new creation, which is the receipt of the Holy Spirit and becoming heirs of Abraham and of God through faith, not by works of the law. So we're going to see those two thoughts in Paul fleshed out as we go into 3 and 4. So this new creation aspect of, theolo- uh, of Paul's theology, it, you know, again, it shouldn't be read in contrast to the typical justification. It's just that the way he perceives it is the, he, the way is he perceives that a seismic ontological shift has taken place in cre- in creation itself via the death of Jesus, a new age has come, and that we become participants of that new age and uh, members of the new creation via the gospel, faith, and receipt of the Holy Spirit. Okay. All right, so we've got um, then again verse 14, Jesus Christ, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. And that spirit being received through faith brings us into the new creation. We're going to see Paul talk about faith and baptism as one in the same reality. So we don't want to pit baptism against faith here. Um, we're going to see him make that connection in the verses to come. All right, so then Paul really, um, in a sense, has brought a mini-conclusion to his argument at this point, but he's going to carry it on. So uh, in verse 15, he makes a new point. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, 
So you can think of a business arrangement or, um, uh, a, I mean, even a marriage, any kind of legal covenant or agreement or testament, um, a will. So even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it, cancels it, or adds to it once it has been ratified. All right? So then the argument would go, Well, let me save that. Let me go on to 16. Now, the promises were made to Abraham and to his spermity, his offspring. It does not say, it being the scriptures, they do not say, it does not say, and to offsprings, plural, referring to many, but referring to one. Now, quoting again, and to your offspring. So, God says to Abraham, and to your offspring, singular, that's Paul's point, who is Christ. Okay, so this then is going to be analogous to a covenant made. And so if we go to 15, to give a human example, brothers, even a man-made covenant, no one annuls to it, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. So the promise here is parallel to that man-made covenant. It's the promise of God. It's a unilateral covenant, a point that's going to be brought out here in a minute. But it is nonetheless a covenant. So even if it was a man-made covenant, you can't do this. How much more if it's a God-made covenant and you can't annul it? This promise to Abraham in Christ, to annul it would be to put the law there and say, not Christ at all. Or to add to it would be to say, yes, Christ plus the law. You can't do either, you see. That's his argument. Simple enough to follow, I think. Now, this offspring, if that puts some tension um, in your mind, that like, well, wait a minute, offspring of Abraham isn't... Isn't that like a loaf of bread, you know, even if there's, uh, there's one, there's many slices, you know, so offspring, or like you say, fruit, and fruit is singular, but it can also have a plurality, right? Um, if I say, hand me that fruit, you might hand me one pair if that's all there is, or 50 pairs, you know, if, if the pairs, if there are 50 pairs on the table, and so... Uh, you say, isn't that kind of abusive of the language? No, don't worry about that at this point. Paul's going to do that. The singularity and the multiplicity of what it means for Christ to be the offspring, he's going to address. Okay, so if that's kind of scratching at your mind, put a little medication on it and wait a second. It'll be okay. Promise. Okay, so the first thing we want to get then is the way that Paul is reading this text is that the blessing of Abraham... Um, is specific to Christ. It doesn't refer to many, properly speaking, but referring to one and to your offspring who is Christ. All right. Verse 17. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward. Now, this is, uh, you can look in the study notes. So this is just, it's not completely precise. But 430 years after what? after Abraham was declared righteous by God on account of faith and faith alone, prior to circumcision. Okay? So the law that comes 430 years 
after this promise made to Abraham does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God. That is justification by grace through faith in Christ and the Messiah. That's the first covenant. So this second covenant, the law, um, cannot annul it. If it annulled it, it would make the promise, that's the first covenant, void. You see the way his logic's working? God establishes justification by faith through righteousness. That's covenant, covenant number one. If the law comes along and says, actually, it's by works, that law can't annul the previous agreement. So far, so good? That's, that's his argument. Okay. For if the inheritance... Now, what's he talking about? Sonship with Abraham, to be Abraham's sons and heirs, and thus to be sons and heirs of God. So, if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. Now, here you can see Paul addressing exactly the argument that the Judaizers are making. Hey, the inheritance does come by the law. And Paul says, if the inheritance comes by the law, then it no longer comes by the promise. So it's either or, it's not both and. That's the key. And this, by the way, I mean, this is that either or not both and is really the heart of the Reformation. It's the heart of Paul's argument in Galatians. It's the heart of Paul's argument in Romans. Uh, And it's really the heart of the question of justification itself. It's either by faith or by the works. It can't be by both. And then if you think it's by works, you must do all of them. So it's not by works either. That's the way Paul's rhetoric works. Okay, so, um, for if the inheritance, the giving of the Spirit, faith, sonship, with Abraham and with God the Father, comes by the law, then it no longer comes by the promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. So then if God gave it to Abraham by a promise, it does not come by the law. That's the point, or the works of the law. All right, that really ends that little um, additional argument. And uh, it's, you know, it's important because the, the gospel in this sense precedes the law. That's a, that can help you, in, you know, be clear in your theology, um, it, at least in terms of like the post-fall world. Okay, the world has fallen. There's, there's really no law given by God. There's the gospel, the promise that the seed of the woman will crush the serpent's head. Okay? And there's no law given in, in any proper sense, in any meaningful sense, even through Abraham. And Abraham receives this gospel promise. 430 years after that, you have Moses and Mount Sinai and the, the storm and the fire and the Ten Commandments are given. Now you have the law. And then you have the law up until Christ. And then Paul's saying that law, the time for which that law was given is over. And a new time has come. And it's both a new time and an old time. Because it's the continuation of that covenant 
that was already made with Adam and Eve, with Abraham, now fulfilled in Christ. So the law was given for a time and now it's been taken away. And here what we're thinking of when we say laws, we're thinking like the necessity of circumcision and the sacrifices and the dietary laws and the, um, all, all the rest that goes along with it. The time for that is ended. All right, well, why did God give the law then? I'm going to let Paul make that argument because he asked that very question. Why then the law? Okay, and that is the question on 19. Before we get there, let me pause and see if you have any uh, comment or question on um, 15 through 18. So God gave the law to not eat of the tree, right? Yes. And he also gave Abraham the law to go and go to a place that I prepared for you. Is that correct to understand that as law? Yeah, it's just, it's okay, so we're just thinking in different frames here. Um, so maybe the, maybe the clearest way to put it would be yes, and, and it's why I specifically framed in the first place, like if we're talking about the post-fall world, then it's gospel and then the law is not given. And, and that's really probably the best frame I don't know. It's a better frame, anyway, for understanding where Paul's coming from with this argument. We're going to understand Paul's argument in kind of a different mental frame here in a minute, okay? Um, Yes, Uh, so if you go, like, a little broader in theology and kind of away from Paul's argument, yeah, you could make the case that the law precedes the gospel in the sense that God in the garden gives everything, including commands and boundaries, you can have all of this, um, but not this, right? You could say that that's generally a, a um, law. And there's a whole bunch of argument that goes back and forth between Lutherans. Is, well, is that law or gospel? And yuckety yuck yuck. Um, I don't know. I get bored with all that. I, I think that one of the things that occurs is in a, in a pre-fall world, there really isn't a distinction between law and gospel. It's simply the word of God and it's good. Whether he tells you have this or don't have that, you don't receive it like, oh, that's terrifying, I'm guilty. There's none of that. You receive it as good. That's what it is. It's good, it's glorious. So that's why I personally think it's a meaningless argument to argue if in the garden there was law or gospel first or what. I mean, have dominion over the earth. Be fruitful and multiply. I mean, law or gospel. I... (laughs) It's meaningless to me. It's completely meaningless to me. Uh, but after the fall, is God requiring and condemning if I don't meet? Now all of a sudden law becomes, you know, that makes sense. Is God promising me forgiveness and mercy and blessing in Christ? That is gospel. That, that, that distinction suddenly starts to make sense in the fallen world. Um, yeah. Yeah. Okay, so that would be a deeper way of thinking about um, your question of like kind of law and gospel and that kind of thing. Um, was there one other part of it that I was missing? Or does that kind of answer it for you? I, I did have one question, though, about okay. just kind of Messiah 101. So, yeah. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but my understanding is that the Jews rejected Christ as the Messiah, but they had some idea of, of a Messiah. Yes, that's that's true. And it remains true even today for a, 
I think it's a pretty distinct minority of uh, Jewish people. They're still waiting for a Messiah. Um, just they reject that Jesus is that Messiah. But that's numerically a pretty small slice of the pie or percentage-wise a small slice of the pie. That's my understanding. Most Jews these days aren't interested in the question of a Messiah. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, you know, it's, I think it's important because you just, you look at, you've got this raw data and then you've got different ways of organizing it and thinking about it. The raw data just being the chronology of God's acts toward man and God's words toward man. And you've got different ways of organizing and thinking about it for different purposes. I mean, for example, why wouldn't Paul go back to Adam and Eve here? It would seem to fit his argument that the Gentiles are in if he went back to Adam and Eve in Genesis 3.15 and the promise. But why doesn't he? Why does he begin it with Abraham? Because Abraham is to be seen as the father of the Jews. And so it's as if Paul means, I mean, it's as if in Paul's thinking, the gospel begins with Abraham. Uh, Of course, that's not what Paul thinks. That's the argument that he's making here. So that's what I mean by frames. You've got this long chronology and data set given to us in the scripture, but different authors will grab at different points and create different frames in order to make their point to their audience. And in fact, we're going to see Paul do that again, and it'll help us really understand what he's getting at if we just, if we see, for example, in Paul's mind, it's like, it's like, almost think of the world as created where you've got um, those who are under the law and those who are outside of the law, and that's how it's always been. Okay, so you go, well, weren't there people before the law? That's not, what, that's not Paul's frame. Paul's frame is consider the world as people under the law and people outside of the law. You see, so it's just trying to grasp the author's frame because he's selected that data set in order to drive home a point. And that's going to be a frame that Paul uses and a data point that Paul uses as he pushes us forward to see that while the pagans were worshiping their false gods and the Jews were doing all their Jewish stuff, this is, these are the elementary principles of the world. That's the old stuff. The new has come. Through the death of Christ, we are being pressed forward out of that evil age into what is new. Okay, so um, hopefully that's of some help and some use and maybe even more broadly in terms of your exegesis because you always have to ask yourself, like, what is the frame that this biblical author is selecting in order to drive home his point? If you don't make that move, you're going to get confused because you're going to be like, what was the first covenant? How many covenants are there? I mean, even think of something so simple as like the New Testament, the New Covenant, and the Old Covenant. I mean, how confused would you be if you don't realize that that's a kind of framing? Because in truth, the New Testament, salvation in Jesus, precedes the Old Testament, which is, you know, properly speaking, the Mosaic Law. Yeah, so it just comes down to semantics and how you're thinking and um, which frame you're selecting for which purpose. Which is, that's where, you know, you get this History Channel stuff, like, 
it's just so common, it's everywhere. I shouldn't pick on the History Channel, but you know, Christianity is 2,000 years old. Not according to St. Paul. Not according to Jesus Christ. <laughs> Christianity is as old as man. It goes all the way back to Adam and Eve. That Christianity is the oldest religion. I just, you know, I got no time for this. Oh, the older faiths. There is no older faith. Everything's fabricated and artificial in a twisting and, and rejection of the truth that was proclaimed by God to Adam and Eve. Every, that's the origin of false religions. You have to have a true religion first, then you get all the false ones. <laughs> so Christianity is the oldest religion, just unequivocally. That's what Jesus thinks. That's what Paul thinks. To say otherwise is just patently in error and not understanding the founders. All right, so then on to, uh, yeah, why then the law? Why would God just drop this? We were all justified by faith. Why would God just drop this thing down on us? It was added because of transgressions. That is to say, because of man's sinfulness. That's why God puts down the law. But here's the key word for Paul, and it's going to, you're going to see this um, chronological language pop in, and it's why reading verse 1-4 is so essential for understanding the way Paul is thinking. So, it was added because of transgressions until... The offspring, who he has just said is Christ, should come to whom the promise had been made. All right, so let's stop there. The law has its end when Christ comes. Hey, we're not talking about like the, the Ten Commandments or the morality of the law. We're talking about the whole system. I mean, picture like you know, redeeming your firstborn son with a sacrifice and circumcising him and going to temple and buying the lamb that's going to be slain and following the dietary laws and the clothing laws and all of that was put on to do what? Paul's argument is ultimately going to be to teach human beings how sinful they actually are and how impossible it is for them to follow all the commandments of God to heighten their own self-knowledge of a need for a savior. That's why the law is given. This is going to be Paul's argument, okay? So then, um, again, Paul has kind of subtly shifted the frame. Now you've got from the start of the law to the coming of Christ as as a kind of frame that he's looking at. So it was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place, it being the law, was put in place through angels. Now we don't have a a biblical text that points this out directly. I think 19 says that, uh, the study note I mean on 19. Yeah, though unidentified, the intermediary, according to most commentators, is probably Moses, who was assisted by angels. Oh, there are a couple references, so maybe that's what it maybe that's where those references are. I was mistaken on that. So God spoke directly to Abraham, but he administered the law through intermediaries. 
evidence that the law is inferior to the promised gospel. Why? Okay, the promised gospel that God speaks to Abraham is spoken directly to him. That's ultimately the reason why, um, okay, verse 20, and why it's so confusing. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. That is to say, if God is one and the law came through an intermediary, the law isn't prop- it, it can't be compared with God speaking directly and promising as he did with Abraham. You have an argument made here like the argument made throughout Hebrews that the Mosaic covenant is inferior to uh, the Christian covenant. Okay, so um, how so? Well, it's mediated through Moses and the angels. That's inferior to God himself doing it. God himself proclaiming this in the past tense to Abraham, um, in the present tense, through, directly through his, to and through his son. Okay. So that's essentially the argument being made. Um, let me see about this. I mean, you get a hint of that in, um, back in verse 16 with the oneness of the offspring and now the oneness of God and that oneness being superior to the bureaucracy of angels. And that might be the way to understand it. Nobody in America likes bureaucracy. And that's a, that would be an idiomatic way to understand the argument. He's saying the Old Testament was filled with bureaucracy and was established by bureaucracy. The covenant of Christ established directly by God which is superior. So that's, that's the argument there. And of course, the nature of the law is that it divides humanity too. That's another way commentators have taken this because the law immediately, the law as understood ceremonially um, creates an in and an out, creates two human beings, the Jew and the non-Jew, the Jew and the Gentile. Okay. And so commentators will see that, well, God is one, and there needs to be one man that corresponds to that. And the law is precisely what causes the division such that there are now two men. The man of the law, the man of God, and the man of uh, the world, uh, not of God. Okay, so that's another way. And why do they argue that way? Because Paul... Paul, um, addresses those themes in chapter 4. I don't buy that quite, quite as much. That's a stretch for me, but who knows. All right, well, this may end up being a little bit of a cliffhanger, but so be it. Paul asks his second question in 21. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Now, this is where Paul does his rug pull because the answer you would expect based on his argument all the way up is yes, the law is contrary to the promises. And that would be like, if you really wanted to make, see Paul make that case, it would be 11 and 12. The righteous shall live by faith, but the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. So is the law then contrary to the promises of God? On that basis, you'd say, Absolutely. But Paul says, absolutely not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But that's an impossibility. Therefore, in 22, but the scripture 
imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. That still looks pretty contrary to us. But here's the point. Now, before faith came, and that before is going to tie into this way of thinking of St. Paul, this present evil age versus what's to come. Okay, So, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came. All right, there's the key. There's really his answer. Is the law contrary to the promises of God? By no means. Verses verses 21 through 22 are showing how they are, in fact, contrary. (laughs) And then, at least in terms of how one justifies himself. And then verse 23 and following gets to how they're not at contrary purposes. God uses the law not to stump men or damn men, but to drive them to Christ so that they may have salvation. So then revisiting the question, is the law contrary to the promises of God? No. Both are things used by God to save man. And that's Paul's way of reconciling them. Okay, that's not a cliffhanger. That's great. We should stop there, especially because I saw some heads nodding that uh, that makes sense. So we'll, um, we'll revisit this argument next week, just um, hopefully narrowly now, since we're uh, not going to be two weeks out, but just one. And then we'll go on to this argument. And here we're going to have to, again, view the frame in which Paul is thinking. Otherwise, we're going to get confused. And when we get confused, we think bad thoughts and dumb things and um, do bad theology. So we'll pay real close attention to the frame And the language Paul is using, the way Paul's thinking, we're going to see how it clarifies a lot and makes sense. The Lord be with you.